Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, July 17th. I'm Noreen Cáceres. These are today's headlines. The battle over the mandatory use of face masks grows. Georgia's governor suing the city and mayor of Atlanta over the issue, while Democrats in Florida plead with the governor to issue a statewide order. Across the country, Republican state and local leaders are starting to break ranks with President Trump over his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And a Cuban-American man bikes 3,000 miles from Washington state to Washington, D.C. to get President Trump's attention. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. The U.S. hitting a new record in coronavirus cases as the controversy on mass mandates continues to heat up. In hard-hit Texas, refrigerated trucks being brought in to store bodies, while in Florida, one mayor saying he is ready to shut down his city in the coming days. The U.S. breaking another record in COVID-19 cases, reporting more than 77,000 infections in the last 24 hours, a single day high. In Georgia, the positivity rate averaging 13.6 percent and hospitalizations increasing 39 percent over the past week. This as the governor sues the mayor of Atlanta over a mask mandate. We shouldn't need a mass mandate for people to do the right thing. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom saying she will prevail in court and Governor Kemp is putting politics over people. It's my belief that the city of Atlanta still has the appropriate standing to mandate masks, especially as it relates to buildings and, and places that we own and operate. So far, governors in 28 states have issued mask orders including in Texas, where the situation is growing more and more dire. Officials in Corpus Christi calling for refrigerated trucks as morgues are filling up. I think we let our guard down. I know patients are growing pretty thin for a lot of people, and it's a frustrating uh, time because you're fighting an invisible battle. Refrigerated trailers also being used as temporary morgues in San Antonio. We go home and we cry. We're exhausted emotionally. Meanwhile, in Florida, the new epicenter of the outbreak in the U.S., masks are not mandatory. Democrats now pleading with the governor to reconsider his decision. In Miami, the mayor says the city's hospitals are at 95 percent capacity and another stay-at-home order is likely to happen next week. We're at the highest level of ventilators that we've seen through this pandemic, which obviously is worrisome because that's an indication of, of the death rate uh, that will increase most likely uh, over the next couple of weeks. Florida today reported 128 deaths and more than 11,000 new cases. Meanwhile, as Florida becomes the new epicenter of the virus in the United States, the state's hospital beds are quickly running out. Romina Leon has more on what life is like right now inside the state's medical centers. Florida, breaking yet another tragic record, this time registering 156 COVID-19 deaths in just one day. More than 44% of those deaths occurred in Miami-Dade County, where intensive care units are at full capacity. Things have become more difficult in the sense that we are seeing many more patients. We are moving patients from one ICU room to another and opening more spaces. Juan Flores, a well-known Honduran actor, 
activists is in serious condition in one of the county's intensive care units. I don't know what day it is because it is too much medicine. This is something unknown and I don't know what it is. According to the state health department, almost 14,000 new infections were registered in Florida in 24 hours. The second record broken in less than a week. It is estimated that the infection peak could be reached in two to three weeks. At this time, the goal is not to open hospitals outside of hospitals. The hospitals have enough extra beds. What we don't have is employees. So the governor is helping the hospitals to bring in 2,500 nurses from other parts of the state and from outside Florida to help here in the south. Juan knows that there are lots of patients in the intensive care unit where he is being treated. You hear coughing and coughing in all the corridors. He listens to the other patients fighting for their lives. Not being able to breathe is the panic that hits the most. To believe that you will close your eyes and won't open them again. I try not to sleep in the morning to be attentive. He thinks about his family. In the early morning you cry. A movie of your life comes to mind. And some alarming new data about children and coronavirus in Florida. The State Department of Health reports 31% of kids under age 18 who were tested for the virus were positive. Dr. Marcos Mestre is the Senior Medical Director for Pediatric Services at Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami. Doctor, it sounds like very scary numbers. Do they worry you at all? Yeah, I think the, the main thing that we're seeing is the the infection rate is going up and we do see the children about the same rate that the state is seeing about 31 percent um, and thankfully the kids are doing well in the sense of that they're recovering well um, the hospitalizations that we've seen have gone up as well but thankfully those kids are usually shorter hospitalizations uh, we do see some uh, more serious infections in uh, adolescents, uh, especially obese adolescents. Uh, but again, the infection rate, similar to the adult side, has been going up. Thankfully, though, the severity is not as bad as those uh, adults. And doctor, are infants and children being tested for coronavirus as much as adults are right now? Uh, yes, we're, we're offering the testing at our centers if the child is uh, having any symptoms or has an exposure. We are testing those uh, children at the same rate and offering the, the capabilities uh, to get the test. There's not as many testing centers for children, uh, so perhaps in the community it's not as easy, but thankfully within our institution uh, we've been able to secure those tests and be able to test the children uh, for that. Dr. Mestre, a recent commentary in the journal Pediatrics says children rarely transmit COVID-19 to each other and to adults. How could that affect the back-to-school debate? Yeah, we're still, we're still trying to uh, tease that data out. Right? At this point, we do not think that children are uh, vectors or trans being able to transmit to other children or as adults anecdotally from what we see of the children that do come in. Uh, typically, they're getting it from uh, the adult or an older adolescent in the household and not the other way around. Uh, so, yes, that does have an effect in terms of the capabilities of children going back to school. But we also have to think about the teachers. 
especially if we have an elderly teacher above the age of 60 or 65 um, and the, the risk that that puts them at. Um, and that's something we have to consider as well. And we should point out or clarify for our audience that hospitalizations for babies and children remain rare, but they do happen. What are you seeing at your right. hospital? Yeah, we've seen a bump up in the last uh, three weeks or so. Uh, since the time in, in um, uh, mid-March, we've had, a, since that time, we've had about 150, 160 admissions. 70% uh, of those have come in the last three weeks. Um, and in regards to our positivity rate uh, before uh, June 24th, our positivity rate was about 3%. And uh, now, since June 24th, we have it up to uh, what the state is, about 31%. And do we know what the long-term effects of COVID-19 are on the younger population? At this point, we do not, especially as it relates to the, to the lungs. Um, as, obviously, any child that requires a ventilator, which, again, is very rare, um, they may have some long-term effects of just being on the ventilator. Uh, but as of this point, we don't. We are seeing those children that had the multi-system inflammatory syndrome about three to four weeks after an infection, and those children could have some uh, effects in regards to their coronary arteries uh, of the heart, uh, but at that, this point, we're providing close follow-up to those patients to make sure that those aren't long-term complications. Doctor, what are the symptoms parents should be looking out for in terms of COVID-19 and anything suspicious they see? At this point, uh, the main symptoms to watch out for for an acute infection is making sure that if they have fever, um, any respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, um, if they have any nasal congestion, headaches, some of the uh, not as common symptoms, if they lose their sense of taste or smell, uh, they could have some gastrointestinal symptoms of vomiting and diarrhea. And then we also have those that have the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, again, about three to four weeks after an acute infection, could see some fever returning, rash, redness of the lips and uh, redness of the eyes, some swelling of the hands and feet. Well, thank you so much for your time and all of this information, Dr. Marcos Mestre. Thank you so much. And the CDC is waiting to release new documents on protocols for the reopening of schools. The CDC was supposed to release more reference documents by the end of the week, but a spokesperson says the information is not ready yet. This comes after the recent push by President Trump to open schools back up again in the fall. The New York Times reported last week an internal CDC document called reopening schools the highest risk for the spread of coronavirus. And the CDC is extending its so-called no-sale order for cruise ships through September 30th. It applies to vessels with 250 or more people that are in the U U.S. in the U.S. waters. The CDC says COVID-19 has affected about 80 percent of ships in just under five months. It says almost 3,000 passengers and crew members might have gotten infected during that time. And now to the president's handling of the coronavirus crisis. An unpublished document prepared for the White House Coronavirus Task Force and obtained by the Center for Public Integrity recommends that 18 states in the coronavirus red zone for cases should roll back reopening measures amid surging cases. 
The red zone is defined in the report as those areas and counties that during the last week reported both new cases above 100 per 100,000 population and a diagnostic test positivity results about above 10 percent. Those states are Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, California, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Idaho, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Nevada, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. And the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, speaking for the first time to President Trump in several weeks. This as a Republican gov governor criticizes the administration's early response to the crisis. Andrea Linares has more. Governor Larry Hogan slammed President Trump's early response to the pandemic in a Washington Post op-ed, writing, Eventually, it was clear that waiting around for the president to run the nation's response was hopeless. If we delayed any longer, we'd be condemning more of our citizens to suffering and death. I was really talking about the first few months when some of the real mistakes were made and when things were, uh, you know, uh, they, they have eventually gotten a lot more done and the, the rest of the team has been working uh, harder to fix some of these problems. The White House was quick to respond, accusing Hogan, who had COVID-19 tests shipped into his states from South Korea, of being two-faced. This is revisionist history by Governor Hogan, and it stands in stark contrast uh, to what he said on March 19th, uh, where he praised the great communication that the president has had with governors. The press secretary also defending the White House's push to reopen schools in the fall. When he says open, he means open and full, kids being able to attend each and every day at their school. Uh, the science should not stand in the way of this. Also claiming that President Trump's position is supported by science. The science is on our side here. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, President Trump and the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, spoke for the first time in several weeks. That conversation reportedly went well. Both Trump and Fauci appeared to be on the same team. This comes days after Dr. Fauci faced harsh criticism from some of Trump's top aides. As conversations continue, so is the race for a vaccine. In a stunning new development, the scientist leading the Trump administration's coronavirus vaccine program, Dr. Monsef Slawi, will be allowed to remain a government contractor. He is working on a contract that pays him $1. Under this arrangement, he can avoid ethics disclosures required of federal employees. He can also maintain his investments in pharmaceutical companies. Democratic lawmakers have expressed outrage and called behavior. for the Department of Health and Human Services to require Dr. Slowey to fall under the same rules as federal employees. But HHS says it cannot require such a shift. In response to these complaints, the Trump administration has said that Dr. Slowey has taken steps to avoid potential conflicts of interest, including selling stock and stepping back from corporate leadership to mitigate ethical concerns. Slowey has been credited with leading the creation of 14 vaccines in 10 years. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And Mark Zuckerberg has blamed the Trump administration for the U.S. coronavirus outbreak becoming, quote, worse than many other countries due to less effective leadership. The Facebook CEO slammed President Trump's response to the pandemic during a Thursday afternoon discussion with Dr. Anthony Fauci. 
The tech entrepreneur asserted that the U.S. reopened too quickly before lowering the number of reported cases, citing the sharp drop of cases in every other developed country as an example of the misstep. And memorial services are taking place to remember Fort Hood Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen as her family calls for justice amid the ongoing investigation into the killing of the young woman who was brutally taken from her loved ones while serving her country. Pedro Rojas has the latest from an emotional memorial service. Well, yes, the family is inside the base today, along with attorney and also all the members of the unit where Vanessa Guillen uh, was a part of here in Fort Hood. Apparently, this is going to be an emotional event. The Army has decided to keep it privately away from the media, at least inside the base, so that the family can get a chance to meet and mingle with the soldiers that were part of the unit where Vanessa Guillen was uh, here in this base. Now, besides this emotional event, the family is also getting ready to... Uh, take a trip to Washington, D.C. and meet up with the president. They will be meeting up with the president and uh, at the White House on July the 29th. And also the attorney let us know that next week, uh, Congressman Tulsi Gobar from Hawaii and along with other members of Congress will be introducing the bill called I Am Vanessa Guillen. This bill, they will look into defending the rights of soldiers that are victims of sexual abuse, harassment while they are serving in the armed forces. Now, on July the 30th, the family will be also in Washington, D.C., presenting this bill formally, and they will also march from the U.S. Capitol to the White House, uh, along with the members of Congress, uh, other members of, of LULAC, they will be present in Washington, D.C. So at this point, the family is getting ready for a large amount of public appearance. And so far, we don't have a date yet for the funerals for Vanessa Guillen in Houston. They said that the Army has still has not released the remains of Vanessa Guillen to the family. So therefore, we don't have a date for that yet. But what we know so far is that the family, at least for next week and the following, will be attending several public events they had to do with the efforts to change the course on how soldiers are treated inside the base when they denounce that they are victims of either sexual harassment or any type of abuse. Back to you. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Several weeks ago, the Supreme Court had a major court decision to protect the status of hundreds of thousands of dreamers, at least for the time being. But about those who are still trying to uh, stay in the country and don't qualify for that program. Luis Mejid has the details on their struggle to remain in the United States. The Supreme Court gave them a victory keeping the program alive. But now, USCIS is closing the door to dreamers who apply to DACA for the first time. Dice que no está, uh, ahorita el programa vigente. Immigration que attorneys no said their clients are getting letters of rejection. The Trump administration is contradicting the Supreme Court. We asked USCIS why this is happening. So far, we haven't received an answer. 
En este momento no sabemos qué hacer. Many dreamers are confused and simply don't know how to move forward. Why is this happening? Si no necesita nada el servicio de migración ahorita para... Those who fought the case in front of the Supreme Court say there is no reason. A few days ago, President Trump said he was going to fix the situation of the dreamers with another executive order. Now the White House says the solution must come from Congress. The president has long said that he would look for a legislative... San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. A Cuban-American man from Seattle wants President Trump's attention, so he's biking across the country to get it. Carlos Lasso is riding a bicycle from Washington State to Washington, D.C., to convince the Trump administration to lift economic sanctions against Cuba during the coronavirus pandemic. He's doing the trip with some help from his sons and his nephews. Carlos Lasso joins me now via Skype from Helena, Montana. Carlos, your mission, your mission is called Bridges of Love. Why did you decide to take this on? Well, we are in the, in the middle of a pandemic And I think that countries should cooperate instead of sanction each other. For 60 years, uh, our country have had animosity between themselves and uh, sanctions. And the Cuban people is the one who suffers for these sanctions. We created a petition like three months ago, and we sent the petition and changed that all to President Trump. But we never get an answer from the White House. 20,000 people signed for those uh, for that petition, mostly Cuban Americans, and we Cuban Americans, a great majority of Cuban Americans, want a different policies toward Cuba, where we can visit our families when we don't have to go through all these uh, inconvenience that have been created in the last few months. Uh, that's the reason because we are doing this, uh, going across the country, creating breaches of love. First of all, to uh, be able to unite our country, uh, to, to our two countries. I always say that Cuba is my mother and the United States is my father. There I was born. Here I had the other half of my life. I want that my mother and my father, that is the uh, Cuba and the United States, get along good. And I'm going to bike with my sons and my children over there to call the attention of our government to do that. And Carlos, along with trying to get the attention of President Trump, you're meeting with legislators and voters along the way. What kind of conversations are you having with them? Well, I, that's a conversation that I'm having with the uh, voters and with the legislators. Sometimes they don't, they don't know what the, the embargo means. And I just call the attention about, for instance, uh, recently the administration prohibited that uh, flights from uh, the United States to provinces in Cuba. They basically canceled those flights. For us, it's very difficult to visit our families when we have to just travel to one airport and then travel by, by road to other one. Also, there is a lot of restriction for us to send money to our families uh, in Cuba, either in the United States or from other countries in Europe. It's impossible. Western Union doesn't allow those remittances to be sent. And finally, and, and not least, right now, in the middle of a pandemic, the, the U.S. government is basically trying to stop the vessels that bring uh, uh, fuel to Cuba. And, and I want to remain, remind the U.S. government that that fuel is the one that light the, the, the Cuban houses, the hospital, and move the ambulance. Instead of being fighting right now, in, instead of being trying to sanction, we have to be cooperating. 
uh, and, with, with others. And Carlos, this is a very long trip. You're thinking it's going to take you five to four to five weeks and 3,000 miles. How are you feeling? I feel very, very happy. And I feel so uh, full of enthusiasm. Along the way, we received the support of regular Americans. Also, along the way, we received the support of uh, legislators. Uh, uh, yesterday, we bike with one Montana senator. He, he joined our bike. And, and we hope, we already have a scheduled Uh, meetings with uh, different uh, elect officials mm -hmm. and we uh, different people, the Republicans, Democrats, it doesn't matter what the political background is, it doesn't matter the creed, religion or race. We are all Americans and we are in this together. And Carlos, and I, my, I very very, last, yeah. my very last question, we have very little time left. What, what's been the best yeah. part of your trip? I cannot answer that question because every single minute is a great part. Every single minute uh, we feel receive message from Miami, from Cuba, from people giving us encouragement, people biking along with us from different countries, sing, uh, sending us songs in videos to, to encourage us to keep going because they feel that this is the, the here is the will and the heart and the love of the Cuban people, wherever they are. Well, thank and you so much, every, Carlos. Thank you so much for your time, Thank Carlos, and good luck on your road trip. Suerte con todo. Thank you for having me. Gracias. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.